Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode, I interview Michelle Harrell, a partner and litigation attorney at Taft Law. Michelle has handled all kinds of cases in her 30 plus years in practice and is known for real estate litigation in particular. Michelle tells the entertaining story of her epic six-year battle against the city of Pontiac on behalf of her client, a developer and owner of a commercial office complex in Pontiac. Michelle talks about the twists and turns in the case and the amazing results she achieved for her client. This conversation was a fun one for me, and it includes many great takeaways for real estate litigation and for litigation in general. I also want to take this chance to announce season two of the Litigation War Room, launching soon. We will broaden our horizons and take the podcast in what I think are some interesting new directions. Our goal is to keep you engaged and informed and to provide vital tools for honing your craft as a litigation attorney. More on that to come. I hope you enjoy today's interview. Michelle Harrell, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Hello, so happy to be here. Well, I'm so happy to have you. Michelle Harrell, you are a litigator extraordinaire. You're the classic all-around litigator, but I know you have particular expertise in real estate litigation and have some very interesting and colorful stories to tell us. I'm looking forward to sharing with our listeners. You and I had a great pre-interview call earlier, and I really enjoyed hearing the stories you had to tell. But before we jump into those, could you just tell us a bit about yourself and about your practice and about your firm? Sure. I'm happy to do that. So I've been a litigation attorney for more than 30 years. I can't believe it. I practice in many areas of litigation from real estate to business to trust, shareholder disputes. If there's a court case about it, I'm in it. Right now, I'm at Taft Law in Southfield, Michigan. It's a 135-year-old firm with a client-first mentality. We're multi-state. We're in several states, Michigan, Illinois, Ohio, Indiana, Colorado, Delaware, Minnesota, Washington, D.C., and Kentucky. It's an 800-plus attorney law firm, so very full service. My office is here in Southfield, Michigan, which is just outside Detroit. Prior to this, I was at a law firm, uh, Madden, Hauser, Roth, and Heller, right across street here in Southfield where I did the same thing. So litigation, all different kinds. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And I know you're an all-around litigator, but you do have a particular niche in real estate litigation. Um, Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So since the beginning of my career, it seems that most of the cases that I enjoyed the most, but also have the most of relate to real estate in some form. So just all aspects of real real estate from zoning disputes to use and ownership of property, landlord, tenant, and boundary fights, which seem to be escalating lately. I'm not sure why, but most of my long litigation sagas and really interesting cases come out of boundary fights between neighbors. Well, I'd like to talk about one of those. Thank you for for sharing um, that bit of background. I want to talk about this case, Ottawa Towers v. City of Pontiac. Um, For those outside the Detroit area, Pontiac is a city outside of Detroit, a city. It's not a huge city, but um, there's a lot of industry there here in Oakland County. 
And my understanding is you represented Ottawa Towers in a a battle royale, a a long extended six-year litigation or set of litigations or lawsuits against the city of Pontiac. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that and maybe the place to start would be just to tell us about the parties and in particular who, who you represented. Yeah, so the Ottawa Towers case was definitely a saga. And you're right, it ran for more than six years. I represented the Ottawa Towers, which were two office buildings, eight-story office buildings located in downtown Pontiac. Pontiac is a city much like Flint and Detroit. It was very automotive-based for many years, but in later years, they suffered from you know economic downturn. But these two eight-story office towers were owned by a client that was out of California. So attached to these office towers was a parking structure called the Phoenix Center. And if you had seen Pontiac and if you Google Earth it, you'll see the Phoenix Center. It's gigantic. It's a parking deck with a plaza on top with an amphitheater. It's right smack in the middle of downtown Pontiac. And these office towers were physically attached to the Phoenix Center. And the towers used the Phoenix Center for parking for its tenants. So it it was very critical that the towers have parking in the deck, but also the structures were physically attached. So I represented the office towers. My opponents were the city of Pontiac, the emergency manager, who I'll explain in a second who he was, Oakland County, which is the county in which the city of Pontiac is located. The emergency manager is a really interesting public figure. So around the time that this case started, the state of Michigan enacted an emergency manager statute, creating this public office and this official, and it empowered this individual with significant powers. It was very similar to a bankruptcy trustee that He could invalidate contracts. He could alter terms of leases. He could sell property. He could do anything within a wide variety of things relating to the city. So at this time, the emergency manager, his name was Louis Schimmel. He was appointed by Governor Rick Snyder to be the emergency manager for the city of Pontiac. And he started exercising his powers. And that's what started this whole case. He decided that he wanted to demolish the Phoenix Center and put a wrecking ball through it. And of course, you can imagine my office tower clients were not interested in that. They were very upset, not only because they needed the parking, but there were physical attachments to the two towers. It would have been catastrophic. So once the emergency manager contacted the client, the towers, and said, we're going to be demolishing the structure, and they objected. The emergency manager then started erecting barricades around the parking deck, blocking access. This is prior to any litigation? This is prior to the lawsuit being filed. There was a lot of back and forth with the client and the emergency manager. Things got very heated between them. The officials started calling my client a crybaby, and a California slum ward, and they started taking to the papers, the press, and saying how you know we were standing in the way of progress in Pontiac, and that 
they were going to demolish the, the Phoenix Center. And do you know what were they going to put in place on the Phoenix Center? Why was it so important in their view for it to be demolished? Well, what was happening at the time is there was an adjacent parking lot called Lot 9. And the Lot 9 was next to some of the towers. It was an interesting scenario that that particular parking lot was sold to the Oakland County Executive family. And we always thought that there was, you know, a plan to force our tenants to park on that parking lot. But at the end of the day, we thought maybe they just wanted to force our, our client out of town. There was some reason that they wanted this structure and these buildings. We never really could understand what was behind their purposes here. Uh, we offered to buy the Phoenix Center. We offered to, yeah, offered to buy it, offered to maintain it. We tried all sorts of different things over the course of the six years, but we could never persuade them just to end the dispute until the very end. We don't know what was their motivation. It didn't make a lot of sense to us either. So, okay, kind of taking stock, you represented Ottawa Towers, the owner, um, not a state owner of that property. It's adjacent to and actually attached to the Phoenix Center, which includes parking. Um, the powers that be decided they wanted to demolish a wrecking ball through the Phoenix Center, and that would have been devastating for your client. The dispute arose, and you said that they blocked off parking to the Phoenix Center. Is that right? Yes. So they obstructed access. So that turned the situation into an emergency. We had heard through the grapevine that they were lining up a demolition company to come and put a wrecking ball through the side of the Phoenix Center. So that was the genesis of us having to get court relief and file a lawsuit. Nearly you called this case a six-headed monster, so I think we've already heard about a couple of the heads. Yeah. You know, the city that you're up against, and also it sounds like there's this PR element where they're already taking it to the press and saying nasty things about your client. And so, okay, so you guys are the ones who took it to court. Tell us what you did. Yeah, so the first thing we did was we filed a lawsuit in federal court because Oakland County Circuit Court is located in Oakland County and we thought it would be best to potentially be in federal court so we were in more of a neutral forum or so we thought. The problem once we were there was the federal court felt that the federal court did not have jurisdiction over the case and we were sent back and we filed at Oakland County Circuit Court. This was over the span of a very short time. So we were in Oakland County Circuit Court, which is actually physically located in Pontiac. And I could see the Ottawa Towers in the parking deck from the courthouse. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we were literally in the backyard of where this fight was happening. And we filed the case and immediately filed a motion for preliminary injunction to prevent the demolition of the Phoenix Center. And we were faced with strong opposition. We had an argument in front of the judge. His name is Judge Michael Warren, and he's a circuit court judge in the Oakland County Circuit Court. Judge Warren is known for being very interested in constitutional principles and following the rules, the court rules. And we felt like he was a really good choice for us because we knew we would get a fair hearing and that he would follow the law. So the hearing came. We argued the motion. It was literally over two hours back and forth with hypotheticals and all sorts of 
argument. And finally, the judge granted our injunction. And the first line of his order was, the question before the court today is whether the Constitution matters. The court determines the answer is yes and finds in favor of plaintiffs. You know, what a... <laughs> yeah, what a, what a line, right? Words that you lay eyes on when you read that opinion. I... Yeah, it, to me, that had elevated the case to beyond just an easement and owners fighting with each other to this was government against a property owner. And we were fighting, you know, strong powers that we were trying to maintain our property rights. And the, the center of the case was really an easement case. And it started because the towers possessed an easement for ingress and egress over and through the Phoenix Center. You know, and in the easement itself, which is, a, you know, a really basic real estate document, but easements can be very fascinating. So this particular one was written in the 1980s. And I'll tell you, I was, I was just flabbergasted with it. It was 27 pages long, 11 by 17 inch paper. It looked like it had been typed on a Pika typewriter, a single space. We laughed about it because literally one entire page, the only punctuation, it was one long paragraph with only semicolons. It was the most difficult document to read. I, you know, figuring out who had what rights. It was, it was really a puzzle. And the purpose of this gigantic arcane document was basically just to say people could drive through the parking garage or through the park. Right. Well, the one word, yeah. So it gave these, the towers, it's easement of right to ingress, to go in and out of the Phoenix Center parking deck. But the one word it did not include in the easement was the right to park. So, you know, if you read it, you know, literally, it would be we could drive around and through the parking deck and never stop and park in it, which was, you know, preposterous. So we were faced with this ridiculous easement document and, you know, an adversary that was ready to fight us in court every inch of the way. But once we obtained the injunction, that was our first win. And luckily, it was one of many to come. You know, it's funny, when we were talking earlier, one of the things I said to you was, so I take it the case wasn't resolved with an injunction, because in so many cases, which start with an injunction, a motion for a preliminary injunction, very often, after the injunction, the writing is on the wall, pretty clear where the judge's sympathies lie, and it sounds like Judge Warren made um, his point of view very clear and very well known. And um, obviously, some cases do proceed beyond preliminary injunction, and but in your case in particular, what was the phrase you used? This was just the, the Boston Tea Party? Yes, this was like the Boston Tea Party. This was like a shot over the bow that we had prevailed and they were not going to stand. And, you know, honestly, in the years that I've been litigating against cities and townships, there seems to be a theme that the government wants to flex its power, whether it's in court or outside of court. But this again, turned into what I had described to you before as the six-headed monster, because although we won the injunction, we thought, great, no wrecking ball. But that was just the beginning of a six-year fight. And the reason, you know, is that it spawned more litigation. And, you know, the first thing that happened was the city went in and asked 
Judge Warren to clarify, and I'm doing air quotes, clarify the injunction. And the clarification they were looking for was basically to render it a nullity, to say that we had no right to park. So we went back on this motion for clarification. So you could go in and out, residents of the Ottawa Towers could go in and out all they wanted as long as they didn't park. As long as they didn't park. So they were willing to let us drive around in circles but not park. Joyriding was was the evident purpose of these. Yes, exactly. Right, okay. Yeah, pinball machine, right? We could go in, bounce around, (laughs) and leave. And I just remember going back to this court hearing and... You know, I was, I was very tense. I was, I wanted to maintain the injunction and I was worried for my clients. And when we walked into court, I noticed that there was the news camera crew was there. And I asked the clerk, why was the news crew there? And she told me that the city had requested that the news folks be there to witness this hearing, which you know, shocked me, but also like terrified me that maybe I was getting ready to get reversed. So it was not only news cameras, but they also brought along city officials. City officials, yeah. So I'm sitting in the Oakland County Circuit Court in the city of Pontiac. I'm suing Oakland County and the city of Pontiac. And they bring in the mayor of the city of Pontiac, several Oakland County commissioners, who opposing counsel introduces them all to the judge, like as if he didn't know who they were. And, you know, I felt like this was, you know, theater that was being done for a purpose. But, you know, thankfully, Judge Warren was, was, maybe he was impressed, maybe he wasn't, but it wasn't going to change his decision. And they had made a procedural mistake in the case. Like I mentioned before, Judge Warren is very, direct on the court rules and he knows them backwards and forward. You know, there's no such thing in the Michigan court rules called a motion for clarification. There's a specific court rule about a motion for reconsideration, but there's requirements for that and uh, a standard that applies. Tough standard. It's a very difficult standard, uh, which of course they didn't want to talk about that. But when I brought that to the judge's attention, he decided that, well, the choice was mine that he was giving me the option to either treat it as a motion for reconsideration or that he would deny the motion. I bet you had to think long and hard about that one. Kidding, actually, because it seems kind of obvious. But on the other yeah. hand, why would he be asking this question? Yes. And I, and, I, and I felt like he was maybe wanting me to argue the motion as a motion for reconsideration because we were all there. We had all briefed everything. And he said on a motion for reconsideration, normally you, you would, I would not get to address the court under our rules. And he would let me explain my position. And I thought about it long and hard for a minute. And I said, Your Honor, I would choose that you deny the motion. And he said, I agree with her. Motion denied. And it was all over. So, you know, that, of course, was temporary, too, because they came roaring back with something else. And there's the mayor, and there are the city commissioners, and there's the members of the media all watching this. Yeah, they all marched out of the courtroom together, puzzled, and opposing counsel had words for me. I mean, I understand it was probably embarrassing, but, you know, that's the litigation that, you, you know, situation you go through. So, of course, they came back and filed a motion for reconsideration now, 
they had to file it the same day. Oh, so they file another motion for reconsideration. They did, because they literally, you only have a certain time to file those motions. And it was the, the time period expired that day. So they had to run back and they filed it again. Changed the title on their other motion. Changed the title, filed it again. And this time, the judge issued a written opinion that was what I would consider scathing that said he was very clear in his initial injunction and there was no reason. And he said, for the sake of clarity, let me underscore again, the city is not to do anything to impede the Ottawa Towers access and use of the Phoenix Center, period. It was a very strong opinion. And you would think, okay, that should be the end of that, right? But no. So I'm sitting in my office one day, my phone rings, it's my client. And they're extremely upset because the city has Oakland County Sheriff's deputies blocking the entrances to the Phoenix Center. And they're putting up some sort of caution tape and all sorts of, you know, things around the entrances to block access. And I literally, I think my jaw hit the floor. I couldn't believe it. I immediately called counsel, opposing counsel, and said, what's going on? And he, and I believe him, he had no idea because literally no one in their right mind would violate this injunction. And so I had to file a motion for contempt and to enforce the injunction. We had a hearing. They had no explanation other than, oops, you know, our building department made a mistake and, you know, they were very sorry. And, you know, the judge imposed a nominal fine, but warned them very strongly that don't do this again. You know, you can read an injunction and he was not amused. But after that hearing, a very interesting thing happened because I had said earlier that this was a saga and it just kept continuing and blossoming into more and more. So you would think after these three events that they would say, okay, maybe we should take a different approach. Maybe feeling just a little bit chastened by all of this. Something or, or pick up a phone and say, what do we do here, right? Instead, they doubled down. So the next step was um, we were in court and I won't say who did it on the other side because that would be unfair. But, you know, we were pleased that we had got the injunction enforced. The judge had underscored it. They were suitably chastised. An attorney walked up to me and said, put your hand out. And he was kind of joking. I mean, we didn't have a personal animosity. And he put a quarter in our hand and said, here you go. We were like, what is this quarter for? And he said, that's how much we're going to pay you for the easement because we're going to condemn the property now. So now you've, you've, you're, you have no option now. This was all fun, but this is going to be over soon. And here's your money for, for an easement. That's like from a Netflix, you know, courtroom drama. Yeah, that's what the babies yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It was like, here's the horse head in your bed, right? Like, I'm like, what just happened? The um, temerity. Yeah. Yep, that's the nicest word I can think of it, but the temerity. <laughs> yeah, in the courtroom. The court was not in session, but it was in the courtroom. Right after that, it may have been nominal, but this is shortly after being sanctioned. Yeah. So I, it would just, I, it would, this case surprised me repeatedly. So 
and they they made good on their their you know threat. They did file a condemnation action, and so you had had a previous podcast with Jerome Pesek as uh, your guest. Jerome Jerry is he's preeminent in condemnation law, so I contacted him and said. I want to bring you on the team. Uh, this thing is blowing up into an even bigger case. So he joined our team and um, helped us with the condemnation aspect of this new case. And I learned so much about condemnation law. So again, now it sprouted an entirely new case. Uh, Michelle, could you pause here just and give us a 15-second overview of what condemnation is? Yeah, so condemnation actions involve a government authority exercising its right to take your property for a public purpose. There's eminent domain. Eminent domain, a taking, it's all the same thing. So when they do so, they have to pay you what's called just compensation for whatever they're taking from you. So if they take part of your property or all of your property or shut down your business, there's a lot of law about what they have to pay you to compensate you for taking your property through eminent domain or condemnation. The process is statutory and it's very specific. So you have to be very careful with these cases because they have defined standards. And if you make a mistake, there's consequences. So there's a cautionary tale here about eminent domain that thankfully I was on the right side of, thanks a lot to Jerry Pesek. So they filed a condemnation action to condemn the property. And prior to filing the court case, the, the public body is required to make what's called a good faith offer. And that's a term of art. Um, a good faith offer is the public body making in good faith an offer to the property owner to pay an amount of money that they feel and have calculated to be a reasonable amount for whatever they're taking from you. So there's a process where the property owner then considers the good faith offer and can reject or accept it. But regardless of whether you accept or reject the good faith offer, the public body is still legally able to take your property if the public purpose exists. So you have to have the public purpose and you have to have the good faith offer being made that satisfies the statute. So in condemnation law, typically the question is not whether the government body gets to take the property. It's just how much do they have to pay you when they take it, but they have to make a good faith offer. They can't just pull a number out of a hat. It has to fit within certain parameters. Exactly right. So it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, usually. And if you don't agree with the good faith offer, then you have the ability to litigate about what the number would be, what the just compensation is. But in the meantime, they get to take your property. So in our case, it would have been they get to put the wrecking ball through the Phoenix Center, and then we can fight later about what that value of that property right was worth. Was it the easement that they were condemning or was it the towers? They were condemning the easement. Okay. And it was a little vague about whether they were condemning the Phoenix Center itself uh, because there were lots of other interests that were in that parking deck and they wanted it knocked down. They were not condemning the towers. But we had said that 
by tearing off the, the facing side, the side facing the deck, you would have destroyed the towers because they were physically attached. So in that process, the city made a, what they thought was a good faith offer under the statute. The mistake that they made was they gave us a nominal number for what they thought was the easement value. A quarter? Uh, yeah, basically a quarter. <laughs> like a multiple of that, but definitely not enough. But what they failed to remember was during the course of our occupancy of the Phoenix Center, we had been paying significant money to maintain and upgrade the Phoenix Center. So the background is the city had allowed the Phoenix Center to become dilapidated, just neglected it completely. Someone went in and, and pulled all the copper wiring out and there was no there were no lights, which was unsafe for our tenants. So we went in and started fixing the cement cracking and put lights inside of it, powered it up. So we had found these liens under the easement. So pursuant to the easement, we were entitled to file liens for improvements and repairs that we made to the Phoenix Center. So these liens were sitting out there. They were recorded. They were served on the city. But when they made their good faith offer, they just forgot about this property interest, which turned out to be fatal to their condemnation case because a good faith offer has to include payment for all of the interests of the party that you're condemning. So even if they had said, here's a dollar for your liens, that probably would have been sufficient, but they didn't address it at all. So fast forward back to Judge Warren, who follows the law. He looked at the good faith offer and said, your good faith offer fails to meet the requirements of the statute. So therefore, the condemnation action will not proceed. Ouch. Yes. And that was a significant hit for the city because under the eminent domain law, if you try to take my property and you make me an offer, a good faith offer, and that offer is not in good faith and not complete, and your case is dismissed, the law requires you to pay my attorney's fees and expenses, which because we had litigated the condemnation case, there were all sorts of, we had experts and there was all sorts of activity. Fees were in excess of $300,000 at that point. And the city was not able to pay that. So that was the tipping point. And then, then you went to mediation. Is that right? Yes, we did. So I think that eminent domain case being dismissed was a tipping point. Well, what, what's your case still then proceeding then or still pending? The original case was still pending. Okay. And it had been, we had conducted all the discovery. There were motions pending. And everyone kind of said, okay. Let's try to mediate some sort of resolution. So what was going on in the background was there was a change in mayors. So there was a mayor who was voted out and we had a new mayor in, you know, installed in the city of Pontiac and she expressed interest in getting this resolved. So suddenly everyone wanted to go to mediation and we decided to mediate with Judge Gerald Rosen who is at JAMS Mediation in Detroit, Michigan. We chose him specifically because he was the judge that 
solve the Detroit bankruptcy nightmare. You know, Detroit was had filed for bankruptcy as a municipality, and it turned into just a giant mess because Detroit didn't have money, significant creditors were involved, and it was really just a, a magnificent thing that he managed to pull off what was called the Great Bargain. So we thought if anyone can solve this Pontiac nightmare, it would be him. We had multiple sessions with him, and in the end, we reached a settlement that resolved all of the cases. And after six years, it was over. The client was completely vindicated. Uh, They received complete relief. And, you know, it was significant because it really upheld the rule of law regarding property rights. So these were just, you know, a property owner with two office towers against literally three government bodies, including an emergency manager. And they were able to sustain their property rights in spite of all of the condemnation, everything. And, you know, the settlement was made public because it had to be approved by city council. Yeah, that was my next question. Are you able to share the settlement terms? Yeah, so it's interesting because the media, they report the cases. Um, In the end, they reported the win, you know, that our client was victorious. So the client received $7.4 million and uh, plus $350,000 for attorney's fees. We rewrote that terrible easement to be a clear, defined easement in the English language with lots of punctuation. Um, that included the word parking, and the city was required to maintain and repair the Phoenix Center, not us. So ultimately, they were incredibly victorious, but it really was just a, just a saga. It's just every day with something different. Michelle, can I ask you a very nerdy question about the case? Yes. Judge Michael Warren is very by the book. He's known as very scholarly. Um, very thorough, very rigorous judge. And what jumps to mind for me is if the easement didn't say anything about parking, was there ever any thought that, was there any worry that he would interpret that literally and say, well, you can drive through it, but you can't park in it? Right. Yes. So the fact that it did not include the word park or parking was definitely a concern. And He was open to construing the easement using common sense. I think at one point he referred to common sense and what must have been the intent of the easement because of where it was located next to the towers, the parking deck was there, and the fact that it was a parking deck. But yes, you know, there's always the concern that you're going to construe you know, a property-related document like that, like a deed or easement or a lien, very, very strictly construe it. So, you know, if anything, that was one of our most basic concerns was that this easement is problematic and it could turn out to be just, we can drive in and out, right? And never stop. So it was like a double-edged sword, right? Right, well, it's an amazing result certainly hard fought, well-deserved. I understand that that year, that was one of the biggest settlements in Michigan and particularly unusual given that this wasn't a personal injury case, for example. I don't know if you normally get those kind of numbers in this kind of litigation. Right, right. It was unusual because, 
usually the top verdicts and settlements are either injury cases or eminent domain, right? Where there's a large number paid as part of an eminent domain case. But this was just an easement case. And I believe that year we were number eight in the state of Michigan as far as size of the settlement. So it was a significant victory, but also really interesting that it was an easement case because a lot of times you think an easement case won't be that, you know, deep and and contested and significant, but this one was. So one one other question, was your client a California slumlord? (laughs) No, no, he was um, actually a Korean War veteran. He was retired. He had made his living in drywall and that's where he, you know, made his his fortune, he was able to buy these buildings out of foreclosure. So the irony of this was he bought these two dilapidated buildings that had been abandoned by General Motors. OnStar used to be in these buildings. And his goal was to rehab them. He put millions of dollars into them. And he was looking forward to being a good civic partner with the city of Pontiac. And instead, he was met with litigation that that lasted all this time. It was very shocking, actually. He printed out T-shirts with California Slumlord on the front. I love it. You know, he was going to own it. He was like, you know. And in the end, at the deposition of Lewis Schimmel, he apologized for saying that and that he should not have said that. So that was, that was a nice thing. Yeah. Wow. What a great result and what a fascinating case. I mean, really, those are some great stories. I was hoping maybe we could just you know, pull out a few takeaways from what we've been talking about. What advice would you give to lawyers and their clients when a property dispute rears its head? Yeah. So especially in the context of a boundary dispute, the first thing that I always do is I obtain a survey from a certified surveyor. You can't look at the fence, you can't look at the trees, and honestly, you can't even look at the building because sometimes the buildings are encroaching. So you can't make assumptions from the physical structures that are on the property. You need to get a certified survey done, see exactly where the lines are, and you know, don't take the word of one side or the other where they are exactly. So, you know, once the thing that I love about real property law is that it's very old and, you know, there isn't a lot of change in the law about real property rights and there's a lot of doctrines that have sprung up, but they're all very old. It's not like contract law, for example, or corporate law, which is complex to be sure. And there's certainly gray area, but they're so neat and tiny in so many ways. So structured. Yeah, exactly. Property law ain't structured. It's like this whole creation of principles and rights, and they sort of all pile up against each other, you know, on top of one another and leaves it to the attorney to pick his or her way through those. Yeah, you got to you got to unpack it. And, you know, the other thing, too, is, you know, now that I've been a litigator for 30 years, I really my mind right away starts to try to find a solution. So if you get in a situation where you really have a boundary problem like Green Dot had, try to find a solution with the other property owner. Sometimes, you know, it's not easy, but a lot of times it's better than litigating and spending all of that money to end up in the same place that you would have been. And, you know, definitely 
if you're buying a property or buying a business, given what I know now, I would always have a survey done if I was buying a property that I know where my boundary lines are. And I, and I can't tell you how many times people give or take a little bit. They're like, well, you know, it just looks better to have the fence over here. And, you know, you can't do that. You can't build your garage where it doesn't belong. So you need to know where the lines are. And a lot of things could be solved. If people did that work up front. And, you know, boundary line uh, disputes are not good surprises to have. And there's really no way around them once you figure out where the boundary line is. Pretty intractable. Yeah, a lot. Very clear. Well, those are words for the wise. Let me close with one other question. And I guess this goes more to the first case you discussed, the Ottawa Towers case. What have you learned about litigating against the government? Because I know that's not the only case where you have, although I do know that that one's uh, uh, an interesting <laughs> battle. Yeah. So... Litigating against the government is unique because the government has special defenses like government immunity and the power to take your property. They also have unlimited resources, really. So one thing I've learned is that if you're going to pick a fight with the government, you really need to do your homework in advance that you are going to be able to sustain yourself through what could be an epic battle. They tend to not be interested in resolving cases, especially if you sue first, and they believe that they have a lot of power, and it takes a lot to overcome that. Well, it's like that saying, if you strike at the king, you'd better win. Yeah, like if you hit me, you better knock me out. Well, good. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Michelle. I really enjoyed your stories and really enjoyed your insights, and I know our listeners will as well. If someone wants to find you and learn more about you, where, where can they find you? Okay, so my profile is available at taflaw.com, T-A-F-T-L-A-W.com. Um, just look up Michelle Harold, or you know, my, my email is available on the website as well. So feel free to reach out anytime. Well, like I said, I really enjoyed this and uh, really appreciate your sharing your insights on the litigation war room. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room and please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the litigation war room.